0: And this morning we will be looking at 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 to 14. You can find this passage on page 959 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Well, some of us who say we are Christians, we might still not be certain that we have eternal life. You know, all of us as Christians still sin. We're not perfect like our Lord and the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Some of us might even feel that we can fall away from Christianity because of how easy it is to fall back into those sinful patterns of life and of behavior that we once partook in before we came to know Christ. How can we know that we have eternal life? Is it something we get once we're dead, after we die? Or is eternal life something we can be sure that we have now? John says in his gospel that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. John six forty-seven. 47. And Jesus, in John 17, when he's praying to his Father in heaven, he says this, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, it is healthy to question your salvation, not to doubt it, but to be sure. We want to know that we have eternal life because if this truth and reality is so, it will determine how we live our life and how we live it differently from the world we live in. John writes why he is writing this letter in chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, friends, the early church during this time had a problem. It was a problem of this idea of Gnosticism, and it was within the church. You see, Gnosticism was a heretical belief that promoted a secret knowledge of God, a knowledge that only the chosen and elite could attain. And so there were church leaders that said they alone had this secret knowledge, and the common believer like me and you, uh, we couldn't have it, we, we couldn't know it. And you see, they also believed in this dualism belief that the spirit is good and the body is bad. And so these church leaders that said only they knew the knowledge of God, they lived immoral lives. They lived in evilness and wickedness because whatever they did with their body didn't matter. It was their soul that mattered to God. Well, in the midst of this wickedness and immorality, John says, this is what you need to hear. 1 John 1, verse 3. Verse 5, he says, God is light. John contrasts light with darkness. You see, light refers to holiness, it refers to perfection and righteousness, sinlessness, moral purity. And darkness contrasted refers to sinfulness, wickedness, unrighteousness. And so John is saying, God is holy. And in this context, the false teachers were saying that God was hidden and dark. But no, John says, God is light. He has made himself known to us, friends, in the person of Jesus. Listen to what John says in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands." You see, John was a a disciple and apostle of our Lord Jesus. He saw him face to face. He touched him. He, He saw him. He knew him. John was for sure. And he wants us to know and be sure today that we have eternal life. So the title of our message this morning in 1 John 2 is how to know that we have eternal life. And our main idea in our text this morning is you can know that you have eternal life if you are walking in the light. You can know that you have eternal life if you are walking in the light. Well, how do we know if we're walking in the light? John mentions three ways this morning in how we can know that we know God. First, by walking as Jesus walked. Walking as Jesus walked. Number two, loving one another. Loving one another. And third, trusting our sins are forgiven. Trusting our sins are forgiven. So point number one this morning, we can know that we have eternal life if we walk as Jesus walked. We see this in verses one through six. Follow along with me. John writes, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments, us as believers in Christ to recognize the seriousness of our sin. You see, our sin insults the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because it is our sin why Jesus came and died on the cross of Calvary. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the penalty. He died in our place. We should have been on that cross. We should have suffered the wrath of God. But Jesus did it on our behalf. Sin is serious to God. But also, John wants us to recognize here in verse 1 that Jesus is the righteous one. The word advocate here literally means called upon to provide help. You see, Jesus comes alongside of us and becomes our mediator, our intercessor with God in heaven. God who is perfect and holy and righteous can have a relationship with us through the God-man, Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who is righteous. And so the provision that God makes for the sinning Christian is that he sent his son, Jesus, the righteous one. And so where the Holy Spirit pleads the cause of Christ to a rebellious world, Christ pleads our cause to the Father in heaven. He is our righteous advocate. You see, Jesus is like an attorney. His portfolio that he opens up before God the judge is a record of his life that was perfect. His death on the cross, the crown of thorns on his head, his nail-pierced hands, his side that was pierced with a spear. You see, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the evidence that Jesus provides the Father on our behalf. So what Jesus makes a case out of before the Father is his own death. And so John means we should not despair because Jesus is making his case to the Father on our behalf. He's using the historical life and work on the cross of Calvary as evidence So John wants us to see that our sin is serious to a holy God, that we're not righteous. Only Jesus is. He's the righteous advocate for us. But also John wants us to know in verse 2 that Jesus' sacrifice for us on our behalf is sufficient. John goes on to say that Jesus is the propitiation, or in other words, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, in which alone qualifies him to be our righteous advocate. Christ acknowledges our guilt, and pre- he presents his own work on the cross to the Father in heaven as means of our acquittal. And so Christ is not the propitiator of something outside of himself. No, he is the propitiation in and of himself. We hear the titles that uh, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king, folks, here we see that Jesus is the high priest and offering the final sacrifice of himself for us. One of the early Protestant reformers once said that Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. So the Father's provision for me and you, the sinning Christian, is his Son, Qualified by his righteous character, his propitiatory death, and his intercession for us in heaven right now. The word here for propitiation occurs twice, here in verse 2, and later on in the letter in chapter 4, verse 10, which says this, "...in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." And so from these two verses, we learn a few things about Christ being the propitiation for our sins. First, we see that there is need for propitiation. The preposition John uses means that he's the propitiation concerning our sins, because of our sins. Remember, it's serious to God. It opposes who God is. And so there's need for our sins to be paid for. But also, the nature of it is Jesus Himself. He's our high priest. He offered Himself on, on our behalf. It is the blood of the Son of God, His sacrificial death, as our substitute to take on God's wrath. That is the nature of this propitiation. And the source of this propitiation is none other than the love of God. You see, even back in the Old Testament, It was the love of God that provided a sacrificial system. When the high priests would uh, sacrifice those bulls and goats to atone for the sins of uh, the nation of Israel, that was a gift and love of God back then. And friends, Christian propitiation today is the appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. In other words, the death of Jesus on the cross... It appeased God's wrath that should have been poured out upon me and upon you for our sins. You see, God's wrath was poured out upon his only son, Jesus, the Son of God, and in so doing, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This great salvation from God's wrath is God's loving gift to us. And John also says in verse 2 that he died for the sins of the whole world. But John doesn't here mean that Jesus' death appeases and satisfies the wrath of God for every single person in the world. But that the, wor- the word world here is people without distinction, meaning Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe, language, people, and nation who will repent and believe in the Son. You see, John 3.36 tells us that the wrath of God still remains on all unbelievers. And so Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath for all those who would repent and believe. In verses 3 through 5 here, we see that John wants us to obey Christ's commandments. He repeatedly uses the phrase, we know that, meaning he is applying supplying tests for us by which we can discern a genuine Christian from the false Christian. And so this is the first test. John says, the first test that we know God, that we have eternal life, is one of moral obedience. Moral obedience. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The word here used for keep indicates more than just merely external conformity to a moral standard. It has the idea of expressing a watchful, observant obedience. One like a guard of a prison who is watching and waiting for something to happen. So the principle is not enough to understand obedience, we must put it into practice. What would you say makes someone an artist? Is it knowing the rules of perspective? Is it knowing the color wheel and and how to mix those colors together? Or is it, yes, those things, but applying those things, putting hand to brush and brush to canvas? Yeah, those first attempts might not be successful, but by persistent practice, one will get better. Rembrandt, a famous Renaissance artist back in the day, giving advice to his student, he said, try to put well into practice what you already know. And in doing so, you will, in good time, discover hidden things which you inquire about. So Rembrandt's advice was to keep practicing and you will learn what it means to be an artist. Friends, to know about Christ, to understand the doctrine of his person and work is mere theory, but we get to know him, and we get to know that we know him by practicing his teachings. In verse 4, we see that this person here that John speaks of, this person contradicts his own profession. John shows that those who profess to know God but don't live like they do, know God, are liars because the knowledge of God is efficacious. If we know God, we have become new creatures in Christ and new creatures live a different way. We go on in verse five, we see that obedience to God shows that a person is a true Christian. When we keep God's commands, John says God's love is in us. And God's love is in us so much so that the love of God is truly made perfect. True love for God is not expressed in mere profession. I know God. I'm a Christian. It's not in mystical experiences, but rather it's in moral obedience. That's the evidence. And so being a Christian means to have a personal relationship with God by, yes, knowing him, but also by loving him. Loving his people, abiding in Christ, and living out his word and his commands and his teachings. And so the phrase, by this we may know that we are in him, is pointing forward to the very next statement, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John is pointing to the obligation of righteous conduct to make a person's profession credible, So verse 6, walk as Jesus walked. It's not enough to obey his word, but we must walk as he walked. We cannot claim to live in Christ unless we're behaving like Christ. We become more like him by imitating him. And our likeness to him is evidence to ourselves and to the watching world that we are in him. You know, just like a a son's likeness to his father proves their relationship, our outward obedience and following Christ shows that we belong to him, that we're in him. When I was a young boy, I remember it was winter, and it seemed like it snowed a foot deep. And my father and I, we walked out the front door, we were going to go into town, And we were walking across the front lawn to my dad's pickup that was in the street. And as my father went before me, I was following him, and he was leaving these large strides, these big footprints. And I could see them deep in the snow. And like any other little boy walking behind his dad, I wanted to put my feet in his footprints. I didn't have that big stride he had, but I wanted to be like my father. Yeah, I slipped and I fell, but I got back up. But you could tell that my sole desire in that moment was to be like my father. Friends, brothers and sisters, we should have the same desire to walk as Jesus walked. If our goal is to obey Christ and live in the light as he is in the light, though we may fall into sin, we can know that we know him. We can know that we have eternal life. Because if we look, the overall trajectory of our life should be one that is increasingly becoming more like Christ. Loving what he loves. Hating what he hates. Yes, we will stumble. Yes, we will fall. But the overall view of our life should be one increasingly becoming like Christ, walking like he walked, living like he lived. Not only can we know that we know God if we are walking as he walked, but also if we have a selfless love for one another. Point number two this morning, we can know we have eternal life if we love one another. We can know we have eternal life if we love one another. We see this in verses 7 to 11. Follow along with me. John says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you his eyes. We see here in verse 7 that loving one another is an old commandment. And what does John mean by that? Well, John now applies to professing Christians a second test that they know Christ. It's one that is a social test. John has been writing to the Christian obligation to keep God's commands. And now he singles out one of those... Commands in in which, in one sense, is an old commandment, in another sense, a new one. And from this context, the command is to love one another because it's contrasting one who hates his brother. So, John tells us to walk as Jesus walked, and now, more specifically, we we are to walk in love. And so, brotherly love was part of the original message Jesus' disciples were hearing when Christ came on the scene. When he started his ministry. When they first came to know Christ, loving one another is as old as the gospel itself when they heard it. And so John can say it's an old command because they had heard it from the beginning. But in verse 8 here, love for one another is also a new commandment. It's new in that Jesus has hung this command He's hung the whole entire law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the whole Old Testament. He's hanging all of that on this one command. Love one another. You see, Jesus is bringing a deeper and a more richer meaning to the command to love one another. We're not only to love others as we love ourselves, but in the same measure that Christ loved us. It is a sacrificial love. A selfless love. And so it's also new in that not only is it a love that is on the standard of who Christ is and not ourself, but also when we love one another, we pray for our enemies. We love them. We pray for those who persecute us for following Christ. You see, this is a new kind of love. Jesus comes on the scene and he raises the bar, he raises the standard of what it means to love, and that is to love like he loved. Well, the darkness mentioned here by John is the present age that we live in. The true light, he mentions, is Jesus Christ. And it is already shining because Christ has already come. He has come into the world. He has invaded this present evil age by himself, with himself. He is the light of love. The true Christian here knows God and walks in the light. They will obey God and love their brothers and sisters in the faith. But the one who hates his brother... Says and perhaps think they are a Christian and in the light, but John says they're lying. They never were in the light. The light has never shone upon them. In verses 10 to 11, we see that here love and hate are in opposition to one another. And it's the evidence of one abiding in Christ or not. So we're, we, friends, are either in the light or we are in the darkness. We are sons of God or we are sons of the devil. The Christian who loves and abides in the light has nothing in them to make them stumble, John says. The light shines on our path so that we know where to walk. We can see clearly where to go, how to live. If we are loving people, then we can see where not to sin against them. However, the person who hates his brother or sister Their vision is clouded. Darkness blinds our vision. And so the penalty of living in the darkness is not merely that one cannot see, but it is that they go around walking blindly. If I were to place this Bible here on the floor, would one of you rush up here real quick and pick it back up? You'll probably continue to sit in your seats, might hear some crickets chirping. You may not even get offended that I sat down a Bible on the floor. Well, friends, if I had done that in India, that would have been outrageous. It would have been offensive. It would have been scandalous and shocking. You see, people in India, they don't like feet. They don't sit around in lazy boy recliners propping their feet up in the air. They take off their shoes when they enter the house. And so to them in India, to place the holiest book of your religion on the floor would be shocking. It would be offensive and scandalous. They cannot imagine the word of God being close to someone's feet. Well, friends, we know from John's Gospel chapter 13... That the eternal word of God who was with him in the beginning became like us. He became one of us. He became man. He took on human flesh. He became in the form of a servant. And what do we find in John chapter 13? Jesus is bending over, washing his disciples' feet. You see, Jesus pulls out a towel and a water basin his fingers are going in between the toes of his disciples. He's washing dirt off the soles of their feet. And he is showing them what it means to be his disciples. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are to love as Jesus did, we must understand the servant-hearted love that he had. Are we willing to get our hands dirty and love one another with a servant hearted love. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Rome, Romans 13, 8 to 10. The Apostle Paul says this, O no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, church, even after all that's been happening in Afghanistan, many of those families are going to be resettling elsewhere. Many of those families from Afghanistan are going to be resettling in the United States. And even possibly 20 to 30 families will be resettling right here in northwest Arkansas. And there is an organization here called Canopy NWA in our area that helps get these families resettled helps them get adjusted to life in northwest Arkansas, helps them get a job, shows them how to go shopping for groceries and to live life not based upon government aid, but they can be self-sufficient. And so, church, there is a training this Saturday on how to come together and support one of those families, those refugee families. If you're interested in loving your neighbor selflessly in this way, uh, reach out to Pastor Ben. He can give you more information about that. But that is one way, church, that you can love your neighbor not only as yourself, but with a selfless, sacrificial love of Christ. Not only can we know that we know God by walking like Jesus walked and loving like Jesus loved, But we can know we know him by resting in his forgiveness. Point number three this morning, we can know we have eternal life if we trust our sins have been forgiven. We can know we have eternal life if we trust our sins have been forgiven. We see this in verses 12 to 14. Here John is turning to his Christian readers and he's making six statements about them. And he introduces each phrase with the phrase, I am writing to you. And what John does here is he's dividing his readers into three groups. He calls them children, young men, and fathers. And John is not necessarily referring to their age, but more so the stage of which they are in their spiritual development, their walk with Christ, the stage of which they are in their faith. The children are those who are newborn in Christ. The young men are more developed and stronger in spiritual warfare. And the fathers, these are those who possess the stability of mature Christian faith and Christian experience and have experienced a long life of highs and lows and remain standing by persevering in Christ And then John repeats his address to them because he's emphasizing knowing God's forgiveness. John wants us, whether we're new Christians, we're battling the things in this life, battling the cares of this world, or even if we're older in the faith and we've been through it all, we've seen it all, God wants us to know through John's letter That we have been forgiven of our sins and we can know that we have eternal life. Follow along with me, verse 12. John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men In verse 12 here, we see that John is addressing the children in the faith. By being born of God, God John's readers have been forgiven of their sins on the account of the name of Jesus. And because Christ is their advocate, they have been and will remain forgiven. Christ's name represents both his person and his saving work done once and for always on the cross of Calvary. He is their advocate He is the propitiation for their sins. And also they have come to know God as their father. These are the earliest conscious experiences of newborn Christians. We have been forgiven and know that God is our heavenly father. In verse 13, John writes to the fathers in the faith. The fathers are spiritual adults in the church. They've been through the battles when they were young. They have progressed to deep communion with God. And so all Christians, new, mature, have come to know God. Whereas the children know God as Father, the fathers know God as the Eternal One, the One who never changes, the One that, who has been by their side all those years. He is their Advocate And then John turns to the young men. Those in this category are being exposed to the vain cares in this life, where it's possible that people can get caught up in what's going around in the world. It's easy to not think much of the kingdom of God. We're we're thinking of the cares of this life. But John reminds them where true strength comes from. True strength should be sought from Christ. It's True strength is spiritual. You see, we are conquerors before we even engage with the enemy because Christ, the captain of our salvation, has once and for all conquered the world for us. And then John turns to the children in the faith. Because children in the faith have had their sins forgiven, they can know for sure that they know God. They can know because they have believed in Jesus as their advocate as their propitiation for their sins, that they have eternal life. So John wants us to know that our sins have been forgiven. He wants us to know that the word of God abides in us, verse 14. He wants us to know that we have overcome the evil one, here in verse 14. And so he says, fathers. In verse 14, fathers. I write to you because you know him who is from the beginning. He just repeated that for emphasis. Just because you have a deep communion with God doesn't mean you don't need reminded. God is your father in heaven. He sent Christ and Christ is there beside you as your advocate. Christ the righteous one is there for you. Your sins have been forgiven. You can know you have eternal life and then he addresses the young men. He gives the same reason also for writing to the young men, but he amplifies it. He says they have strength of youth, but it is a disciplined strength by the indwelling word, and therefore they have conquered. Some of you may know I work at Lowe's here in town, and working in the retail business, one thing that becomes important in shopping in retail and and at Lowe's is that you have a receipt. And so having the receipt of your purchase is like having a golden ticket out the door. So if you walk out the exit door with merchandise and you don't have that proof of a receipt, uh, we're going to think you're a thief. So (laughs) Um, even the employees are not off the hook. So if we buy something and we're all heading out for the end of the day, We show our golden ticket. We show our proof of purchase. But regardless of who you are, to walk out of the store with merchandise in your hands without a receipt would be theft. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus Christ has died the death that we deserve and rose from the dead to be our righteous advocate, our sins have been paid for. The propitiatory death of Jesus Christ is our ticket out of being sons of the devil to being sons and daughters of God. Rest in this truth that the penalty of your sins have been paid for. The full receipt dwells within you. Paul says in Ephesians 1:14, the Holy Spirit is living within us. He, the Holy Spirit, is the down payment The guarantee of our eternal inheritance. We have eternal life now, and it is guaranteed we will inherit it one day when we see Christ face to face. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. Well, friends, we have saw three ways this morning that the Apostle John says we can know that we truly are a Christian, that we can know that we know God, and that we know we have eternal life. First, we can know we have eternal life if we are walking like Jesus walked. Are we obeying his commands this morning? Does our walk match our talk? Does our outward moral obedience to Christ act as the fruit of the root of our faith? If so, brothers and sisters, we can have assurance. Secondly, we can, have etern- we can know we have eternal life if we are loving one another. Do we love others selflessly, considering them as more important than ourselves? Does how we act socially with others reflect the love of Christ? By the way we love others, can the world know that we belong to Christ, that we're one of his disciples? If so, we can have assurance. And third, we can know that we have eternal life if we're trusting our sins have been forgiven once and for always by our Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate. Friends, are we this morning looking to various things in this world for satisfaction, to try to assure ourselves that we're morally good or Are we trusting that the only goodness we have in and of ourselves is that of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who brings about forgiveness? If we are trusting in Jesus as our goodness this morning, as our Savior, we can have assurance that we have eternal life. Friend, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, you have now eternal life. You can be 100% sure this morning that you are in Christ. And you can be sure that Christ is in you. So be encouraged this morning. You don't have to go home and take a nap or go to bed tonight wondering if you have eternal life. You can know without doubting, you can be sure and I will close with how John ends his own letter here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. John says this, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you this morning that your words are that of eternal life. God, that you sent your Son who is eternal life, so that we may know him, that we can be sure that we have this eternal life this eternal life that Christ provided by dying for us, by being the propitiation for our sins and rising from the dead, showing that you accepted his atoning sacrifice on our behalf as payment for our sins. Lord, thank you that even though we may struggle with sins in this life, our desire is to walk like you walked. Our desire is to be in the light as he is in the light. So God, Holy Spirit, Help us, we pray. Jesus, our righteous advocate, come alongside us, strengthen us, encourage us, train us up in righteousness for every good work. May we love those around us with the love of Christ. May Emmanuel Baptist be a light in this community to where souls can be saved, lives can be changed for your honor and for your glory. And we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.